True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hope you're all well. Tonight's case you may or may not be familiar with, but it's another shocking story of not only one brutal murder of a young girl at a beach, but two 15-year-old girls on a summer outing with family members. Before we get into it, I have uploaded the Coming Soon video to YouTube and I have been editing the script for the first video case which, if all goes well, I should have up in the next week or so. Search for True Crime Island on YouTube to check it out. If you want, subscribe and click the notification bell if you want to be notified as soon as I upload it. Tonight, I reference my usual newspapers.com subscription, which includes the Sydney Morning Herald and Age newspapers of the day, also from The Leader and, of course, Court Records. Okay, it's the 11th of January, 1965. Six children go on a trip to the beach. Only four would return. This is the case of the Wanda Beach murders. So we go back to January, 1965, Sydney, Australia. The Smith family, they lived at Brush Road West Ride, always hard to say, about a half hour drive northwest of Sydney. The Smiths were Helmut and Elizabeth Smith, mother and father of seven kids, 16-year-old Helmut Jr., 15-year-old Marianne, 13-year-old Hans, 10-year-old Peter, 9-year-old Trixie, 7-year-old Wolfgang and 6-year-old Norbert. They lived next door to the grandparents of 15-year-old Christine Sharrock, who was living there as her father had died and her mother had remarried. The Smiths had immigrated from Germany six years before and sadly Helmut Senior, who worked for a while at Port Kembla Steelworks, got sick and passed away on the 15th of June 1964. Elizabeth, who could hardly speak any English, took care of the seven kids and was described as the perfect mother. The eldest of the children, Helmut Junior, He worked as an apprentice motor electrician to help make ends meet. The eldest daughter, Marianne, she was described as a lovely girl and very good at school. Both Christine and Marianne were best friends and had recently graduated their intermediate certificate at school. Now that's year nine or third form. Marianne wanted to continue on in school and attend Sydney Technical College and train to be an air hostess. She also had dreams of being a ballet dancer. Okay, so it was the summer of 65. There were bushfires raging in the Royal National Park and total fire bans in effect. Now, very similar to Sydney and Australia for that matter this year. Now, Elvis was playing on the radio. Bright light city gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Yeah, that's what you'd hear if you turn on the radio. Maybe, maybe not that good. Anyway, and uh, it's the school holidays. It's hot. And if you live out west, the thing to do is to jump on a train and go to the beach. 
On New Year's Day, Marion and Christine went to Cronulla Beach, which is about 32 kilometres or 20 miles south of Sydney and maybe 48 kilometres or 30-odd miles from their homes in West Ryde. They would go to Cronulla because they could catch a train all the way there. They'd stop off at Redfern, change trains and can go straight to Cronulla. Now this took maybe two hours, maybe three hours. Cronulla Beach was a minute from the train station and it's small compared to the vast expanse of North Cronulla Beach which is just up from South Cronulla Beach Rockpool and extends in an arc up to and past Wanda Beach forming Bait Bay. Up past Wanda Beach is what's known as the Cronulla Sandhills. This section is quite secluded. The Sandhills ride up from behind the beach, are covered in dense shrubs with a few walking tracks amongst it. The sort of place where you could scream and no one would hear you and no one would see you either. So on New Year's Day 1965, Marion and Christine went to the beach where, according to their diaries, they kissed boys. The next day, Marion took the kids to the beach without Christine and on the 5th of January, Marion's mum, Elizabeth, was admitted to hospital for an operation. This left Marion and Helmut Jr. to take care of the other five kids. On the 9th of January, Marion asked her mum, who was still in hospital, if she could take the kids again to the beach, but it ended up raining so they didn't go. On Monday the 11th of January, Marion took her younger siblings, Peter, Trixie, Wolfgang and Norbert, to Cronulla Beach and Christine tagged along as well. They got to the beach around 11am, but the weather was a bit windy and the beach was closed. Well, not so much the beach was closed, but you couldn't go into the water. The group walked south a bit and had some lunch. Christine left the group for for a while and on her return, they all left to walk up past the Wanda Beach Surf Club and seek shelter from the wind in the sand hills. Now this was around 1pm. Marianne and Christine then told the kids that they would return to where they'd hidden their bags, back down the southern end of the beach, then return and they would all go home. However, they walked off in the opposite direction. Peter told them this, but the girls just turned and laughed at him. Wolfgang then saw the girls go into the sand dunes with a blonde-haired, surfy-looking dude aged about 16. Later on, he saw the same guy come back out of the dunes without Marianne and Christine. Wolfgang asked him where the girls were, but he didn't answer and just walked off. By 5pm, the girls had not come back to the group, Ten-year-old Peter gathered up his three younger siblings, went back to the spot where Marion and Christine had hidden the bags. They took those plus the girls' purses and went back home by train. They arrived at about 8pm and half expected to find Marianne and Christine at home. They told Helmut Jr. that Marianne and Christine had not come back to get them. So Helmut alerted Christine's grandma next door and they called ride police. The kids were interviewed for several hours and a description of the girls was given out to all Metropolitan Police. Back in the day, the police probably thought the girls had just run off to party rather than think they would be in too much danger. So there was no search of the area taken out that night. 
The next day at around 3pm, Peter Smith, 28 of Cronulla, and his nephews, aged 8, 7 and 5, were walking along the sand about a mile or so or two kilometres north of the Wanda Surf Club when they saw what looked like a shop mannequin half buried in the sand. On closer inspection, a girl's head and feet were exposed and another girl's head and buttocks. This wasn't a mannequin and the girls were clearly dead. Peter Smith ran to the Wanda Surf Club where he called police. The two bodies were lying in a sand dune about 200 metres back from the water. Their heads were towards the water and their faces turned towards the north. One was lying with her head at about the waist of the other. The one nearest the beach was in a side-on position as if she'd fallen asleep peacefully. The other was lying face down. It looked like the girls had been attacked about 30 metres away where there was a deeper depression in the dune and had been dragged to where they were buried as there was a blood trail marking the way. No attempt had been made to dig a grave. Rather, the killer just covered them with sand. Their clothes had been torn and slashed by what looked like knife thrusts. They were both wearing green floral blouses. Initial inspections found both girls had multiple stab wounds and one had her throat slashed. Police following up the missing person reports from the night before quickly realised who these girls might be and they were identified as Marianne Smith and Christine Sharrock. An autopsy report showed that Christine had a blood alcohol reading of 0.015 which is maybe about one standard drink's worth of alcohol, probably one beer. She had a fractured skull from a blow to the back of her head and 14 stab wounds. Marianne's throat had been deeply slashed, and she had six stab wounds. Their underwear had been cut off, and semen was found on both bodies and their clothing. It looked like the killer had attempted to have sex with them, but they both had their hymens intact. Police were able to track down several young surfy dudes that fitted the description given by Wolfgang, but these leads would eventually go nowhere. In fact, police announced that they didn't suspect the surfy dude, that dude that Wolfgang had described was with the girls, they didn't suspect him to be the murderer and asked for him to come forward just for an interview, just in case he'd seen anything. But you can imagine, though, why he didn't come forward. I mean, they thought he might be innocent, but they had to make out that they just wanted him for questioning so he would turn up for an interview. But as we know, some people just don't want to get involved. There was not only that guy, but there had been another young guy that had been harassing young girls on the beach earlier that day. Now, police were hampered in their search for clues as this part of the beach and the sand dune areas were strewn with rubbish, old shoes, bottles, clothing, lots of stuff mixed into the sand. They dug up a lot of the sand and sifted through it looking for the murder weapon and although they found three knives and one with blood on it, none were of the type that could have inflicted the wounds. It was thought to be a small knife, maybe a bit bigger or about the size of a pen knife, that was the murder weapon. Further searches using mine detectors from the School of Military Engineering also failed to find the weapon. 
A £10,000 reward was offered by the government. And yes, this was before we had decimal currency in Australia. And although it would be the biggest investigation in Australian history, the case began to go cold. Police asked for assistance from several people they knew were at the beach at the time and hadn't come forward. There were two fishermen, one lady whose car was bogged in the sand near the Wanda Surf Club and the guy that helped to get her out. There was a couple of children also playing near the fishermen and two playing on a track through the sand dunes. Also, they wanted two men in that area sunbathing. One had a strange hat that was made... What they said was it was made of corrugated iron. Now, it may have been he was sitting under a sheet of corrugated iron. Anyway, on the 15th of January, results were being published for the previous year's intermediate certificates. And as I understand it, both girls had just completed this in 1964. Now, I can't confirm this 100% though, but just one of those awful things. you got all these kids that went to school with these girls. They're all excited to see their results from the end-of-year intermediate certificate exams, and these girls have been murdered. On the 20th of January, Marianne was cremated at Rookwood Crematorium after a service that was held at Metropolitan Funeral Home Chapel at Burwood, and Christine was buried in a small blue coffin at Liverpool Cemetery near her father's grave after her service at St Michael's Roman Catholic Church at Meadowbank. Now, all this time, Helmut Jr. was taking care of the family by himself and still going to work every day because Elizabeth Smith was still in the hospital after her operation, although she was able to attend her daughter's funeral. Helmut Jr. was offered a job other than his motor electrician job for about £25 a week so that he could look after his younger siblings better. Now, that was a nice gesture coming out of the community and they were also able to get help from charitable institutions and the local church. Now, while all this was going on, a family of seven had been caught in a bushfire and had all been killed. Winston Churchill was dying and there was a call-up for men to register for the national service ballot as the Vietnam War was heating up. Now, some listeners may remember that era. That's why I'm bringing it up. And it seems so long ago. So eventually, there would be three main suspects. But none of them sort of fit the description of a blonde surfy dude. One was Alan Bassett, who raped and killed 21-year-old Caroline May Orphan at Wollongong in 1966. He would end up serving 29 years for that crime, and he was released after 29 years in 1995. It was alleged by Cess Johnson, a detective on the Wanda case, that a painting given to him by Bassett resembled the Wanda Beach landscape and included details only the killer would know. Now, what they were was it looked like there was a body of a girl in the foreground of the painting. It looked like there was a broken knife. Also, part of he had some red paint where there was should have been grass indicating the blood that was on the grass when the bodies were dragged or the one body was dragged. Now, other detectives weren't so sure Bassett did this crime, but Cess Johnson thought this is strange. 
maybe he did it. Now, another suspect was, and you'll probably know this guy, Christopher Wilder. He was an Aussie known as the Beauty Queen Killer, who abducted and raped at least 12 women during a six-week rampage in the USA in 1984, killing eight of them. Now, this guy, and I will do an episode on him in the future, he was a maniac. He had returned to the States after being given bail in New South Wales, Australia for sexual offences against two 15-year-old girls that he'd asked to do a photo shoot with him. He really was a nasty bit of work. He would end up being killed when on the run in New Hampshire. He was noticed in his car at a service station by state troopers. There was a scuffle and the gun Wilder was holding went off twice, killing him. But I will go into a lot more detail about him, as I said, when I do an episode about him. Now, the third and most suspect of suspects is Derek Ernest Percy. He was born in September 1948, so he would have been about 18 when the Wanda Beach murders occurred. At that time, he was visiting his friend's grandparents in Ryde, where Marianne and Christine lived. He did fit the description of the guy that had been seen hassling girls on the train on the way to the beach and on the beach as well. A couple of years before, when he was 16, police were alerted to him snowdropping or stealing ladies' panties off the clotheslines for those who aren't familiar with the term. And also, he'd been mutilating dolls. In 1965, he started writing bizarre and extremely violent rape fantasies in a journal. Now, what makes Percy a prime suspect is that he was known to not only be in the same area as Marianne and Christine at the time of their murders, but he was tracked to several other unsolved murders. He was at Glenelg Beach the day the Beaumont children disappeared. Again, another case I will do. He was in the ACT, which is the Australian Capital Territory, when six-year-old Alan Jeffrey Redston was kidnapped and murdered in 1966. He was also stationed in Sydney in 1968 and fit the description of the man that walked off with three-year-old Simon Brook, who was abducted and murdered from outside his Glebe home. He was also not guilty, for reasons of insanity, for the murder of 12-year-old Yvonne Tui at Ski Beach near Warneet on Western Port Bay on the 27th of July 1969. He was found to be criminally insane and they jailed him indefinitely and that's what's called at the governor's pleasure. In this case, he tried to not only abduct Yvonne but also her friend Shane Spiller who was able to escape and picked Percy out of a police lineup. Now, he was able to escape because he had a tomahawk on him at the time. Something I don't think you'd see any young kids walking around the street nowadays with a tomahawk. Anyway, now, this was horrifying for the kid as he had to go face-to-face with Percy in the police lineup. There's none of this standing behind a two-way mirror bullshit. Cops said, that's fine, we're with him. It wasn't like Percy was going to be able to do anything to him. Now, fuck no, just scare the absolute fuck out of this kid. 
Now, a coroner found in 2014 that Percy murdered seven-year-old Linda Stilwell in 1969 from Little Luna Park in Melbourne. Now, I won't go into detail on what Percy did throughout his criminal career. Again, I'll keep that for another episode. But let's just go back to this Shane Spiller, the friend of murdered Yvonne Tui. Now, I found this on Murderpedia, and it was unattributed, and I couldn't find any other reference to it. Now, this is Shane Spiller. As I said, Yvonne Tui's friend, Shane Spiller never quite recovered from his encounter with Percy. Now, speaking many years later, he said, I was promised back then that he would never get out. I hope people don't forget what he was like and what he did. They always thought he'd killed others, but they weren't able to prove it. Now, Percy had been every child's, and indeed the community's, worst nightmare. However, the encounter with Percy on the beach wasn't the last time that Spiller saw him. Now, Spiller Spiller was the key witness, and as he described it, what happened stuffed me. In the lineup at Russell Street Police Station, I had to pick him. I had to walk up and point right at his nose. The look he gave me, I can still remember it. The trauma of having to walk up to Percy must have been immense. To the adult detectives, like I said before, who supervised the scene, it was both logical and necessary. Percy was surrounded by policemen and obviously couldn't do any more harm. Now, whether this was obvious to the 11-year-old Spiller is obviously difficult to say. He appears to have remained terrified of Percy. Spiller applied for crimes compensation in 2000, 31 years after Yvonne Tui was murdered. He was awarded $5,000. He appealed and received $50,000, which was the maximum that could be awarded under the compensation scheme. By this time, he was living in Wyndham, a town in southeast New South Wales. Locals who knew him said that he remained scared. Spiller disappeared in late August 2002. When police investigated, they discovered that his four-wheel drive vehicle was still parked at the front of his house. It is possible that the fear of Percy became too much and that he fled, or that he killed himself. Police sources are believed to have a different explanation for his disappearance. However, they believe he was murdered for his compensation payout. I mean, fuck's sake, he, it's not only just the victim of the actual crime that he's, that he's just constantly suffering from. And there can be, of course, so many people affected when something like this happens. But Shane was there on the day. Now, if Shane had been murdered for his compensation... That $50,000 that he got, I mean, that is just even worse. There's some scum that may have preyed on him for the little bit of money he got for all the shit he had been dealing with his whole life. It just, it's just fucked. Now, according to Fairfax crime reporter John Sylvester in 2007, police discovered 35 boxes of documents in a South Melbourne storage unit that Percy had been paying for while inside prison. One box had on it a handwritten note saying, Wanda. Also, a 1978 street directory that contained handwritten marks towards the St Kilda Pier where Linda Stilwell was abducted in 1968. 
Also found were a few packets of razor blades similar to those used to mutilate one of the victims and diary entries that appeared to replicate some of the events surrounding several unsolved child abductions and murders. The injuries found on the Wanda Beach victims were similar to those inflicted on Yvonne Tui. Police did interview him, but it didn't go anywhere. Now, in 2012, a DNA profile was found that belonged to a man on Christine Shorts. This DNA profile was very weak, and it was thought that in the future, this would be able to be tested with better methods. However, despite exhaustive searches of the Glebe Forensic Laboratories where it was stored, they would not be able to find it. Sydney Morning Herald reporter Anne-Louise Brown wrote, The DNA was taken from Marianne at the time. The head of the New South Wales Unsold Homicides Unit, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Lehman, he said after a search, not a trace of the sample had been found. He said testing of the girl's clothes was continuing and he believed the key to solving the case was still through the physical evidence. Trace DNA was detected on Christine Shorts, but it was very old and degraded. It only indicated female DNA, probably Christine's, Chief Inspector Lehman said. He also said there's an indication of male DNA, but it has not been definitively identified as yet. We just have to keep on re-examining all the available evidence as the science improves. Lehman described the initial investigation into the Wanda Beach murders as exhaustive, with more than 14,000 people interviewed. About 5,000 persons of interest were identified, some of whom are still alive. Now, in 2007, Inspector Ian Waterson was appointed head of the now disbanded New South Wales Police Cold Case Justice Project to review the Wanda Beach murders. Mr Waterson, who is now retired, said the loss of the semen sample had been a major blow to the case and, if found, could be the key to solving it. Mr. Waterson, however, believes the man who killed Marion Smith and Christine Sharrock was the serial killer Christopher Wilder. Now, Mr. Waterson said to prove his theory on Wilder, a full DNA profile would need to be obtained from the evidence, which could then be compared with DNA of one of Wilder's male relatives or a sample taken from his brain, which has been preserved in the U.S., Now, fuck's sake, such crucial evidence gets lost. How this happens on such an important cold case that hasn't been solved, look, I just don't know. Especially with the techniques we have today to go over evidence from cold cases, you'd think this stuff would be kept secure. So Percy died in prison on July the 23rd, 2013, aged 64. So, Islanders... Here we have a brutal double murder in broad daylight. Possible leads go nowhere and the case quickly becomes cold. The two prime suspects are dead and the evidence that could now be analysed for DNA, well, that's gone missing. Now, what do I think? I'm inclined to believe Percy was more likely to be the perpetrator But maybe my mind will be changed once I research him and Wilder more thoroughly for future episodes. Now, if it was Percy, and he was living near Marianne and Christine at the time, I mean, 
Did he see them as they were leaving for the beach and stalk them throughout the day? Then see an opportunity when they went off with the surfy boy? Percy certainly had the mindset to do it. Why did Marianne and Christine, why did they go in the opposite direction to where they said they were going when they left the rest of the kids? Who were they meeting other than that surfy boy that I don't think they were meeting? I think he was the guy hassling girls. Was there more than one perpetrator? Now, while Marianne was being attacked, why couldn't Christine get away? Or was Marianne so badly injured and incapacitated that the attacker was then able to run after Christine, attack her, then drag her body back to where Marianne lay? Now, Christine had initially been attacked 30 metres away and her body dragged back to Marion's because of the blood trails. So many questions. And I'm sure someone out there still alive knows the answer. If they're listening tonight, they should come forward to police. Now, they say that the innocence of Sydney was lost that day. I don't think we were ever innocent. Bad shit went down then the same as it does today. There's just more people here now. Anyway, the final thing I have to say is that Elizabeth Smith, Marion's mum, she passed away on the 7th of September 2009, aged 88, never seeing justice for the murder of her oldest daughter. So Islanders, that's it until next week. What a shocking story. But before we go, there's usual end of show stuff to get through. The new theme music is to align the podcast with the YouTube content. I hope you like it. You can let me know, of course. I'm sure you will. I have had requests for copies of the old theme, so I might sort that out as well and maybe upload that somewhere so people want to download it. Also, don't forget YouTube channel. It's almost ready to roll. The coming soon video is already up, so coming soon. Patreon, a big shout out to Timothy Granger. Boom, fuckalunga, Timothy. Thanks, mate. Hi to Amory Wallace. Boom, fuckalunga. And thank you to all my past, present, and new patrons. As you know, True Crime Island is totally listener supported, so you won't hear ads, but just occasional promos for podcasts I think you might check out. To become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island for as little as a dollar a month, a US dollar. You too can help support the island. I will be emailing reward qualifiers this week, so look out for an email from me if you do qualify for a reward. If you'd like to buy me a beer via PayPal, then go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland and cheers. I have merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com and again, I say it every week, but I will be changing up the shop very soon. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. Use the hashtag BoomFuckalunga in your social media if you want. All the links are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. BoomFuckalunga. Boom,